You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Moments before I sat down to record the intro to this week's show, uh, a Jewish friend asked me if I was annoyed by St. Patrick's Day. I am Irish, Irish Catholic. My family names like Hallahan and Keenan, which is my middle name, totally Irish, very, very Irish. And she thought I would find St. Patrick's Day annoying. And she offered before I could even respond that if there was a Jewish equivalent to St. Patrick's Day where everybody ran around pretending to be Jewish, wearing buttons and t-shirts that said, kiss me, I'm Jewish, and wearing cheap plastic shiny yarmulkes and glued-on forelocks and crappy plastic prayer shawls and getting drunk on Manischewitz in the street, that she would find it as a Jew supremely annoying. And I think she wanted to tell me that as an Irish person, she felt my pain today, that she assumed that I would be not into this shit. And actually, I kind of like St. Patrick's Day. I don't participate in St. Patrick's Day. I've never been to a St. Patrick's Day parade in my life, even though I grew up in Chicago, which is a big one like New York. Never been, would never go, not interested, uh, never – wouldn't go to uh, an Irish pub that I might go to on any other day of the year on March 17th, not interested. Um, I'm not going to drink green beer. I'm not going to swim in the Chicago River the day they dye it green for St. Patrick's Day. It's pretty fucking cold. Who knows if it's probably still iced over right now and they couldn't dry it green if they tried. But I, I, I'm, you know, I'm a non-participant in St. Patrick's Day, Irish non-participant, Irish semi-conscientious objector, right? I don't do it, but I don't actually care, and I don't mind that other people do it because I think we need these dates in the calendar. We need these moments where people get a little messy in public and tear it up and drink to excess and let loose. I think we as humans require these, and if you look at basically all human cultures going back. Millennia, these dates are a part of every culture. They're, they're, they're hardware. They're built in. We need them, I think, as humans, as, as these social animals who exist in these sometimes restrictive and suffocating social hierarchies with decorum issues and class issues and strata. We need those days when all of that kind of gets torn up and turned upside down for a limited amount of time, right? We need that release. And we gays, we homos, we have Pride, which is a day where a lot of gay people dress silly and get messy in public, and that's awesome, and I'm all for it. And I've said that, you know, people will say, straight people will say, two gay people. I get this thrown at me sometimes when I do Q and A events at colleges or wherever else that you don't see us. A straight person will say, you don't see us having a straight pride parade, do you? And I look at them and I say, I wish you would. You need one, and you kind of have one. Mardi Gras and Halloween are your straight pride parades. Mardi Gras just in Louisiana didn't take nationally, but Halloween, which is really I've made this point before. It's heteroween. It's become the straight pride parade. Straight people go out. They get drunk. They dress in slutty outfits. That should be more fair, not just objectifying the girls but the boys as well. Everybody should be slutty and just tear it up. And you need that release and straight people need it and they get it. St. Patrick's Day I guess is a little bit like Halloween. It's one of those straight pride parades that's going to come through the neighborhood. The neighborhood I'm in right now, the neighborhood where I record the Savage Love cast – is going to be green and messy today on St. Patrick's Day. And I don't have a problem with it. I'm not going to drink in any of the bars around the office during St. Patrick's Straight Pride Parade Day. But I don't begrudge it to people who enjoy it and who need it. 
And I don't think we should begrudge other people their pleasures, their releases, and their crazy days, their harvest festivals, their straight pride parade days, their gay pride parade days, their St. Patrick's days, their heteroines, their Halloweens, their homoweens, whatever. We need these. Doesn't mean we all have to participate in them. But culturally, collectively, we need this. So happy St. Patrick's Day. Kiss me. I am Irish. And Fifty Shades of Grey opened on February 13th. It is now March 17th, and I still have not seen it. It is day 32 in my not-seeing-Fifty-Shades-of-Grey crisis. And uh, I'll get around to it at some point and dedicate the top of the show to it at some point, as promised. But that point did not come today. And coming up on today's show, Mistress Matisse is here. She knows something about BDSM. We have a conversation about Fifty Shades of Grey, a film I still have I mentioned. I still haven't seen this film, a film I still have not seen. We will talk about at length today with Mistress Matisse, and she's here to take some of your calls. Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old female calling you from the South. My partner and I have been married for almost four years now. He is a wonderful man, an amazing father to a son from a previous relationship and to a daughter we welcomed just over a year ago. We both work in the service industry, and it's actually how we met. I wait tables, and he is the chef. We got married in a slight rush when it was necessary that we had to be married in order for me to live with him due to his custody arrangement with his son's mother. Shortly after a year of being married, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I cheated on him. I cheated on him with a man I worked with at a new job over the course of a couple months. Sooner or later, he found out. I switched jobs. We fought all the time, but in the end, we agreed to work on it. About three months after he found out, I became pregnant with our daughter. It was the happiest moment of my life, and I couldn't wait to start the new chapter of our lives together. Throughout my pregnancy, he did everything for me. He cooked, he cleaned, he made sure I was comfortable the whole night. I enjoyed a little bit of maternity leave after having my daughter and then headed back to work. Now, in the service industry, it's not uncommon to have a drink or two after work. I enjoy doing this because it allows me to feel camaraderie with my fellow employees. It allows me to step out of my mom role for an hour or so and feel relaxed. I don't do this often, maybe once every two or three weeks. However, what I do, my husband makes me feel extremely uncomfortable, so much so that he berates me for doing the quote-unquote same thing I was doing when I was cheating. He doesn't like that I am out late after work while he is at home, even though he's most likely sleeping. He also doesn't like that I have male friends with whom casually join me after work for a drink, typically with several of our coworkers. There's also another issue, our sex life. Since having my daughter, my libido has plummeted. The times that we have had sex in the past year, I haven't felt like myself. I've even cried a few times afterward because I felt so disconnected. When we get into arguments about his discomfort with me drinking after work, he will often bring up that we don't have enough sex because I must not be attracted to him anymore, and I must be doing something extramarital on the night I choose to get a drink. I guess my question to you is how to deal. He has mentioned therapy but never follows through. I also don't know how to respond to his outburst anymore but with anger or resentment. My issue is that he doesn't see how far I have come to change the person I used to be who craves any and all attention into the person I am now, who is content with my marriage, my life, and making strides for our future together. Please let me know what I need to do in order to understand him better or to make him feel confident in our partnership. He's mentioned therapy, you say, but he hasn't followed through on it. How about you follow through on it? How about you make one last 
form of penance for the cheating and you run with that ball. You land the therapist, you find the therapist, you make the appointment, you tell him that you've set this up because you want your marriage and your relationship to be joyful and to survive. That you're a year into a new infinite home and your libido hasn't recovered quite yet, that's normal. And he can hear it from me, he could hear it from you, he can go online to a million different mommy blogs and a lot of different other places and read about it. There are books that can tell him that. It might help for him to hear that from a therapist, a therapist that you're going to do the follow-through on and find. Also, he works in the service industry. He's a chef. You don't say exactly what you do in the service industry, but based on your description of your friends and colleagues and your after-work rituals, sounds like waiting tables or bartending to me, some front-of-house thing. He should understand that – those drinks are – those after-work drinks are a part of it and those relationships in a restaurant really are close and intimate friendships. He has a right to feel perhaps at this stage a little squicked out and vulnerable about those friendships based on your cheating on him in the past. And the stakes are higher now that your parents together and you're married and you have to acknowledge that. He needs to acknowledge that the drinks after are a normal part of – the service industry experience, you need to acknowledge that he is sensitive about this with cause. It's not like he's being a jealous, nutty freak without you having ever given him cause. You've given him cause. So I think what you need to do is on those nights when you want to have drinks that you communicate with him, you give him more information than you might otherwise or you might feel that you need to. You tell him where you're at, who you're hanging out with, how soon you'll be home Maybe send him a pic or two and reassure him in those moments that you are where you say you are. Maybe that's what the pics can go toward proving and that you love him and you're excited to get home to him. You're just blowing off some steam with your coworkers that you have no desire to fuck and you will not fuck. And the fact that, again, your libido hasn't quite bounced back a year after pushing a baby through your vagina, that is normal. And he needs to hear it from the therapist that you're going to do the follow-through on and find. Hi, Dan. My name is John. I'm 34, straight, married for five years, long-term relationship for seven. We're monogamous, but we're pretty open. We're pretty kinky. We've been exploring of late and having a good time. And recently been talking about maybe potentially exploring threesomes, uh, maybe checking out a sex club or two. My particular fantasy or way of thinking about that in terms of the MMF threesome is to kind of maybe potentially turn to a friend. And I don't know the politics of, of that or the etiquette or whatnot. Now, obviously, choosing what friend and who matters, of course, but even still, are there things I should be aware of or, or am I just kind of going into this with blinders? Cause maybe that's kind of what it feels like. Uh, I have particularly maybe two or three very, very close friends. One of whom is a self-proclaimed sex addict. I know your position on sex addiction, but, uh, that's maybe problematic, I guess, right? He's also married, but he is my best friend. I have another very, very close friend, best a bestie kind of friend who uh, also is a potential target, but he's very shy uh, on his end. You know, uh, the fantasy of sharing my wife and making my wife do things for me with other people, men and women, uh, is a fantasy of both of ours. So any assistance would be great. Um, or maybe we should just put the brakes on it. I don't know. 
but uh, yeah, uh, any advice would be helpful. So I have a question for you. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? You have these friends uh, that you're close to yeah. that might be good candidates. And let's say, let's just game this out. You're going to go to one of them and say, my wife and I have always fantasized about having uh, – and my wife fantasizes about having a three-way with two guys and how mm-hmm. about it? And what are you afraid that their response might be? Uh, complete ostracization, maybe. Really? <laughs> really? Do you think that's actually a well, risk? No, I mean, not not really, but it might make things so awkward right. that... If they say no. Recovery... If they're, if they're not interested. Right, or just, like, that's a thing. Like, no one really knows too much, you know, about the level of or the degree to which my wife and I, uh, you know, play around and stuff. So uh, it it would be a big reveal, yeah. Okay, well, you know, no one also knows you know, what they're up for or what they're into or what they're interested in. We also don't know if they're attracted to your wife or if either of them or there are three of them, if any of mm-hmm. them are, you know, turned off by the idea of a two guy threesome. There are a lot of straight guys who would love to have three ways, but not with two guys, right. always with two girls. And for some guys, just being right. in a room with another guy who has a boner is a boner killer for them and they can't do that or go there, Right. So there are two right. hurdles you have to clear, or three. And int- uh, attracted to your wife, okay with you being present, mm-hmm. two boners in the room, and kind of into the <laughs> idea. Like there are three hurdles you have to clear to get to yes. Right. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, right. no risk, no reward. You can't get mm-hmm. what you want from the universe unless you have the courage, the ova, to ask for it. Right. And so you have to decide what you're willing to risk. And when people talk about this with me, they always arrive at the word that you went right to, awkward. It's going to be awkward. And the best way to deal with that is to acknowledge it. Like, I realize I'm going to ask you something. It might be really awkward. You might be really up for it. Or this could be really awkward and I'm going to be embarrassed for having asked. And if that's the case, if it's the latter – I just want to let you know, you know, no hard feelings, not angry if you're not into it, not going to, um, you know, ever ask again. And, mm-hmm. you know, it might be awkward the next couple times we see each other, but let's just power through it. Can we agree to power through whatever awkwardness exists? Right, right. Before I ask. Right, if right out. Yeah, before I ask this question, if you feel awkward about it, let's agree. We don't want to let this one ask ruin our relationship and we'll power through the awkwardness. And even if the awkwardness is a huge deal for them, even if they feel really squicked out, just having like laid that all out in advance increases the odds that they will work through their feelings of awkwardness because you basically illuminated that path and gave them permission to reject you, gave them permission to feel awkward and squicky about it in advance. And I I think that's the best way. And I I say this is someone who's had a lot of three ways with my husband. The best way is to – Invite people to reject you. Say, if this isn't something you're right. interested in, I'm really sorry, and it's okay. You can just say it straight up. If, if right. you're not, well, if, the, if you don't main, want to do this, say it, and I'm not going to be The main sad. thing is, is <laughs> the main thing, I guess, is that the best target that we have is happens to be my best friend, who I mentioned on the message. Do, don't, don't just, message wait, 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 wait. Uh, don't, don't describe him as a target. He's not a bank you're going to rob, right? This is somebody that you're inviting. Yeah, <laughs> To come and have an <laughs> orgasm with you, which is an awesome thing, not a horrible thing. <laughs> right, right. Not a victim. I'm a, we're, not, <laughs> we're not trying to take down someone. Right. You know, a hunt, although it does kind of feel like let, a hunt. Let, let, let's say but, candidate. Uh, let's say candidate, not target. Candidate. That's right. 
that's a that's a, a great term. The problem though is that he's a self-proclaimed sex addict, and I know that he would would be totally down for something like this and would be cool, right? For something like this and not think it meant anything and not get into any kind of craziness and drama and this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I also don't want to like completely make them throw the sex addiction belief or whatever it is right out the window. So do I have to like convince him that has he struggled with the sex addiction? Has he really fought hard in therapy and, you know, going to sex addict anonymous meetings to dial back the amount of sex he's having and the impact it's having on his life? And try to fix it? Well, the gist that I get is that he was addicted to pornography, and then he started feeling, you know, a lot of shame around it, and et cetera, okay. and he couldn't stop. Okay. And then he did go to sex, uh, uh, sex addiction anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, he did go to groups, and he got really into it, and he still believes it. Mm -hmm. And he's like staying true to it and he's feeling good about himself and all this kind of stuff. But, but, is, but he's, is he staying true about all of this and being abstinent or is he trying to, in a controlled way, have sex, be a part of his life, but not overwhelm him and not derail his life? Kind of the abstinence route. He's kind okay, of well, just, then it would, be an asshole, like, it would be an asshole move to approach him. Because what you're doing, okay, okay, what you're doing okay, then is offering okay. a drink to somebody who's struggling with alcoholism. Yeah, right? see, that's what I was. Okay, okay. You're asking okay. him to join you on a bar crawl or a pub crawl. Not cool. It, given what you know about right, his struggles right. with with sex and him trying not to be so compulsive about it, and if what he needs to do right now is be abstinent and really like deny himself any sort of sex, you come along and saying, hey, I know you're struggling with this, but you want to fuck my wife while I'm there? It could be a problem. <laughs> that could be a setback for him, and it would be inconsiderate of you. With where yeah, you know him no, to like be... Yeah. With where you know him to be right now. If in the future, what he says to you is, you know, I'm dating again. Now I think I can have the occasional sexual adventure or even evening in front of my computer without it taking over my life without it ruining my right. relationships, without it affecting my ability to get up and go to work in the morning, if he like can reincorporate sex and sexual adventure into his life in a safe, healthy, constructive way, then you could make the offer. But if what you know right now is he's trying not to have a drink, don't invite him to right. go on a pub crawl up your wife's pussy, right. okay? Because that would be rude. So uh, you move on okay. to your next camp. Okay. okay, I guess it's really good to hear that from you, especially. I mean, I know that, I mean... Not, not. I'm not trying to suggest that you wouldn't have that position, but it's, it's really <laughs> helpful to to hear that. You know what I mean? Well, I think people should be thoughtful and considerate, and uh, of right, where the right. people in their lives are. You know, sex partners or people you'd like to have sex with, or to join you having sex with your sex partner. You have to be thoughtful about where they are, and knowing where he is, the thoughtful thing to do is mm -hmm. to wait or never. Right. You know, right. if, if this is where he's going to be for the rest of his life, if he is so powerless in the face of sex and sexuality that he always needs to have this like wall, then you may right. never be able to right. fight him. But you know, if he re like I said, if he reincorporates it down the road in a healthy way and he's ready for sexual adventures again and it's not going to like fuck his whole life up, maybe then. Now you move on to other candidates. Right. With my right. three-way approach, which so, is, yeah. hey, I'm going to ask you something. It might you you might not be into it. It might be really awkward. You can say no. I can hear no. No is not a problem. Won't change how I feel about you. Still friends, and we'll power through the awkwardness. Right. Would you like to fuck my wife? Just like you say that, 
And there's no, there's no, there's really no way to sneak up to that. I mean, well, no, <laughs> people sneak up to that all the time. They have people over for drinks. They hang out. They let the the conversation get a little dirty, and then the sexual tensions right. in the air. And somebody says, "Do you want to kiss me?" To the you know, you can do the like creepy crawly approach. In my experience, just mm. using your words is more likely to get you what you want. And you're less right. likely to then actually have sex with someone who really isn't that into it, who feels awkward during it. And that's terrible right. because the awkwardness, that's that no kind fun of, for anybody. no fun for anybody. And the awkwardness of that, it will destroy your friendship. There will, there, there will right. be, you know, people do this all the time where they have a three way with somebody and it just felt like the mood was right. And everybody was a little buzzed because everyone had a drink, not blackout drunk, not incapacitated, still capable of giving their consent. But the person who was the special guest star just sort of felt kind of like they were going to be rude or ruin the evening and they didn't want to say no because they didn't want to hurt their friends' feelings and make them feel rejected. And so they went ahead and had the sex and then afterwards they're like, oh, I wish I didn't do that. That's the kind of awkwardness that destroys a friendship. Right. I was worried that we would have to like seduce the person. (laughs) You know, the the best way to seduce somebody is to ask them to fuck you. Not to like right. weasel your way up into and their be hands. like, here's the deal. Yeah. Right. Here's the deal. This would be fun. We would love it to be you. If you're not into it, no worries. We'll, we won't ever ask again. And let's stuff this down the memory hole. If you're not into right. it. If you right. are into it, let's all drop trousers. After we, after we negotiate what's going to happen, after we have a long conversation about what's on the menu, what's not on the menu, what's okay, what's not okay. And we solicit that from you. What do we want on the menu? What's okay with you? What's not okay with you? And you have those conversations. Right. And then you can have a great, awesome three-way. And you've laid the groundwork then for potentially many awesome three-ways with that person. They're going to feel safe with right, you. Right, right. They're, they're going to feel like you took their feelings into consideration, that you approached them in a really thoughtful, adult, and direct way. Mm-hmm. Likelier to get into that person's pants. Can I just ask this question at least, I guess, in your experience, is it, is it usually uh, – does it usually work out more with friends or people you know? Versus, you know, uh, strangers or people you, you know, I don't know, meet at a bar or something or a club. In my personal experience, which I'm not allowed to discuss per my prenuptial agreement with my husband, friends, exes, those were, uh, you know, or people that you got to be friends with because there was an initial attraction. Those are the ones that work well. You know, there are Mm. two, there are two things people want when often what you hear from people when they talk about having a three way. They want somebody safe. They want somebody who they know for a fact has no sexually transmitted infections that they need to worry about. Right. And they want somebody sane, but they also want somebody that they've never met before who knows no one that they know and is going to disappear immediately after. Those two things can't right. be had at once. You can have somebody that you are sure is sane, that you have some assurance about their, their health, and that you, know, you can have that. You can have those safety assurances, or you can have a stranger who disappears the next day. You can't have both. And if, if what you right. want is somebody safe, respectful, um, and who's going to use best safe sex practices and is a stranger who will disappear, then you hire someone. That's a sex right. worker. I think our goal is to have a, you know, comfortable uh, play partner. You know what I mean? Uh, going with strangers still freaks us out, I think. Yeah. Then approach a friend or two. But you can move on both fronts. You know, sometimes a stranger oh, that's true. is right. just a friend you haven't had a three-way with yet. 
right? Right. Sometimes a stranger. Oh, what's a stranger? Sure. Just a friend you haven't met. Sometimes a stranger is someone you haven't had a three-way yet with yet. And sometimes you have a three-way with a person. And if you are solicitous and kind and they seem like a good person and are decent to you both and kind in return, that may be somebody, even if you were having a stranger's threesome, you might want to develop a friendship and a relationship with. Right. Right. So move on both fronts. Hit on a couple of friends. Put up a personal ad or two. Okay. That's great. That's so exciting. Thank you. I mean, it's just clarifies so much because kind of approaching it blind, you know, and you can get so much, so much different stuff online, like so much different advice, you know, like, <laughs> like well, just good luck. It, it runs the gamut. Be safe, be thoughtful, be well, considerate and give us a call back after it happens and let us know how it went. Oh yeah. That would be exciting. Okay. Thanks so much for the call. It was, it was so much pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Hi, I'm calling uh, for my boyfriend. When we first met over the summer, he revealed to me that he had a habit of kind of like slapping or grabbing guys' dicks at parties, kind of like a handshake. And he also told me that one person in particular was upset about it, and they kind of talked about it and settled it. The guy basically said, like, just knock it off and we're good, man. And then that was kind of the end of it. But recently there was some talk about sex politics and things like that on Facebook. And this girl and my boyfriend had an exchange in which there was a slight disagreement and in which he made it clear that he didn't support rape culture, et cetera, et cetera. And the girl later said, well, I live with somebody and he said that you sexually assaulted him more than once. And uh, it seems like the consensus is is that it is the same gentleman who was uncomfortable with the dick slapping slash grabbing. And basically, because the word sexual assault was dropped, um, that's a big deal. And my boyfriend's having a very hard time kind of sorting that out and doesn't know what to do. And I don't really know how to help him because, of course, it's a very volatile, excuse upon touchy subject. And we don't want to kind of, like, engage these people even more. And my reaction is, is that someone's overreacting. But how can you say to somebody else, you know, I touched your genitalia as a joke. It was totally non-sexual contact. As soon as you told me that you weren't comfortable, I rectified it, and I've never done it again. But now, months later, his roommate is saying sexual assault. So we're just looking for any type of advice for him or for me. Uh, any type of feedback would be greatly appreciated. You say your boyfriend doesn't know what to do, but I know what your boyfriend needs to do. He needs to stop fucking punching guys in the dick. It is sexual assault and the person whose dick got punched or grabbed their feelings have to factor in his intention nothing sexual about me grabbing your genitals i don't feel like there's anything sexual about that it's just a friendly little fucked up aggro aggressive sexual assaulty handshake bullshit bullshit your boyfriend doesn't want people to think that he's capable of sexual assault or sexualized violence he needs to stop fucking sexually assaulting strangers who are entitled to their own feelings about when and how and where their genitals were grabbed and by whom. Knock it the fuck off. No one is overreacting. You, caller, you, if anything, 
are underreacting. Let us imagine a scenario where a strange man walks into a party and sticks his finger into your vagina, grabs your genitals. How do you feel about How does that make you feel? Is that sexual assault? If you experienced it as sexual assault, ta-da, it is fucking sexual. Objectively, whether or not you experience it, it's sexual assault. And you wouldn't be okay with it. And that person wouldn't be welcome back. To that. You wouldn't date that person. But you are dating the male equivalent of that person. Men's genitals are their genitals. They get to decide who gets to fucking touch them, when and how and where. A dude who rattles around college parties, grabbing other guys' dicks, slapping other guys in the balls, has a problem. And he needs to knock it the fuck off. He does know deep down on some level, unless he is an idiot, he knows what he needs to do. He needs to find another fucking hobby. And you need to stop enabling him in this by rationalizing it and making excuses for it. Knock it off, the both of you. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old married man. My wife, I've been married about like two and a half years and we've been together for all seven Recently, we've come into kind of an issue. This issue has its root in some of my wife's anxiety and shame that she's gotten growing up, where she feels ashamed of her sexuality. Essentially, as we've gotten together, we've been more comfortable opening up with our kinks, and she feels ashamed to the point where anytime we do something she wants, she'll later come to me and say, you don't think I'm weird. You don't think I'm a freak. You don't think I'm gross. And I try to reassure her that, you know, I think it's great. I want to explore this stuff with you. I want to be happy. But, you know, after doing this, you know, time after time after time, it doesn't get better. She doesn't feel less shame. And while I want to be the supportive partner, I understand it's not this simple. It's really hard when she keeps asking because it becomes, why doesn't she trust me or believe me? At the same time, she projects her shame onto me when I try to bring up my fetishes. We will get in situations where she starts very innocently enough saying, well, why do you like that? But it very quickly devolves into, I don't understand why people would like that. And the, the questions are very leading. And really, it sounds like she doesn't understand why I should, I'm not ashamed and I should feel ashamed. These are conversations I do everything to avoid. I'm okay with never pursuing these kinks. Oftentimes, I'll, I'll bring it up and say, maybe we could do this. And she'll say something like, how about next Wednesday? Wednesday will roll around, and I'll say, okay, well, do you want to do it still? And she'll kind of, you know, let us sigh and begrudgingly agree. And I'll, I'll generally cancel it at that point because I don't want a non-partner uh, you know, who's not excited. But it's overall completely lowered my libido. And now she feels like I'm not attracted to her. It's something that's hard to bring up because I don't want to get into another conversation where she's questioning me in a very accusation kind of way, but it would be ideal to have a more fulfilling sex life. We have talked with counselors and worked, and she takes medication for anxiety, which has helped her day-to-day life overall, but doesn't seem to really have any effect with the shame she feels around sexuality. So I was wondering if you had any tips to help go around that. I think you need to be direct and you need to be blunt with your wife that her attitude toward kinks and the way she draws you out and then shames you is killing your libido. You are still attracted to her, but this sort of endless cycle of arousal, drawing out, uh, maybe even sometimes acting on these kinks and then shutting down, shaming about it, 
being insecure about it, um, her own insecurities, but also then pivoting to shaming you about your kinks and desires is killing your sex life. And you need to make her responsible for that. And you need to tell her that you're not going to play along anymore, that you will offer her rote assurances. Every, that's one of the jobs when you sign up, when you're in a long-term relationship, when you marry somebody, you're going to find out what all of their most sort of secret, squishy, sensitive insecurities are. And it's your job sometimes to offer them kind of, you know, rote reassurances. Like I said, tell me I'm not fat. No, you're not fat. Tell, tell me that I'm smart. You're smart. Like, tell me whatever, whatever. And in a healthy, I think, relationship where the person who has the insecurities it get, you know, can acknowledge that this is a tick, that this is an insecurity, that it's a little – that they know on some level that they are not whatever, but they need to hear it every once in a while, that they can ask for it in a non-sort of high drama way, right? Tell me I'm smart. You're smart. OK, thanks. I needed to hear that right now. And then move the fuck on. You need to get her to that point where tell me I'm not a dirty bird. Yeah, you're not a dirty bird. Sit back down on my face. Whatever it is that you're doing, you can then get back on with it. To help her get there though – you need to get her to another therapist, a kink-positive, sex-positive therapist, and they are out there. The best place to find them, the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, asect.org. That's A-A-S-E-C-T dot org. And look for a therapist in your area who works with people who have kinks and is kink-positive and isn't going to shame your wife for her desires or shame you for yours but in an affirming way is going to help you guys find the language where you can talk about them in such a way that it isn't eating away at your libido. It isn't destroying your sexual connection. It isn't making you feel terrible about the things you're doing with and to each other that you enjoy and should be able to enjoy and give yourselves permission to enjoy without recrimination, self or otherwise. So explain to her that you're not going to play this game anymore and it's very destructive and it is what is harming your libido and interest in sex. This endless cycle of shaming and reassuring and shaming and reassuring and tell her that you would like to continue seeing a counselor, perhaps another counselor, a better counselor, a more kink positive counselor than the one you guys saw last time. Hi, Dan. My name's John. I'm calling from Australia. I'm a 55-year-old straight man. What's happened is that um, I have recently reconnected with an old partner uh, after a period of about a year. Um, I, was, uh, I still am very much in love with this woman and we have a, an incredible sexual connection. The thing is, during the period when we were apart, she was introduced to BDSM by other partners and wants to continue it with me. I want very much to give her what she wants, but the problem is that I'm finding it very hard to initiate a session. Um, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to be dominant. I don't know how to say to her, I'm going to give you these things you want. I'm going to tie you up and I'm going to blindfold you. If you can, Dan, I'd like some guidance on this. Joining me to field this question and a couple of other questions touching on uh, BDSM, Mistress Matisse. She has been a regular guest throughout the life of this podcast and years and years also going back as a guest expert in Savage Love, my sex advice column. She's a professional dominatrix and a writer 
and a Twitterer. You should follow her on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. She's also a sex workers' rights activist. It's so good to see you. It's good to see you too, Dan. Thanks, Thanks. for having me. My pleasure. Before we get to the call, just quickly, sex workers' rights activists, what the hell do you people want? <laughs> I want to not be arrested, uh, mainly, and not also be stigmatized in all the thousand other institutionalized ways uh, for having sex for any reason that I want to, including uh, for money, if someone offers me that. So uh, as a dominatrix, I'm kind of on the, the in this gray area of sex work uh, legality, but there are a lot of people, uh, men and women and trans people, who want to exchange uh, calmly and nonviolently sex for money, and they're legally prohibited from doing so and put into jail and chewed through the legal justice system and generally pushed further and further down you know, the economic ladder. Now, the argument that you read in the newspapers and on the crazy blogs is that legal system, the criminal justice system, it's rescuing people from sex work, that everybody doing sex work has been trafficked, that everyone who's doing sex work started when they were 13 years old, and we need the law and we need anti-sex workers' rights activists to swoop in and save these people who are being abused, who've been trafficked, who are doing it against their will, but also the people who think they weren't trafficked, who think they weren't abused, who think they're doing it of their own free will, but who aren't. You have just encapsulated the whole spectrum of the problem with, uh, with yeah, the anti-trafficking movement, which is that it makes no differentiation between me, a fully formed and cognizant adult, making a choice of my own free will, and a 13-year-old uh, who is being forced to do something. And that's not okay. We make a rational line between you know people who are under 18 doing certain things and people who are over 18 doing certain things. And you may not always approve of their moral choices, but we do have to admit that, okay, this is an adult person who's acting of their own volition. It's not okay for two adults to want to have sex for whatever reason they want to and the state to come in and say, no, we don't approve of your, the reason that you're having sex, so we're going to override both your consent and put you both in jail. Because uh, that's what happens. When you talk about arre- uh, rescuing sex workers, what you usually mean is arresting them. There's so little social safety net, even for under 18 people, who, in my opinion, should not be doing sex work because it's not best for them. But we have so little choices to offer them. Sometimes they point out very reasonably it's their best option. Mm-hmm. And that's what's wrong with this. There are a lot of LGBT youth. It's a subject that comes up in the show a lot, thing I write about and think about and talk about a lot. 40% of homeless teenagers or LGBT kids were thrown out. A lot of those kids tragically wind up engaged in what's called survival prostitution. Yes. And most of them – they shouldn't be doing it. Probably most don't want to be doing it. To compound the grief or angst of having done that with a criminal record doesn't seem like the way to save those Worst kids. possible way to approach that problem. And and that is also true for adults. If someone is in a situation where financially they're just really desperate and they need the money, we're going to clap them in jail. It's become – this is where we come – we warehouse people now who are inconvenient to us in some way. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately that – that population includes sex workers because people think it's icky and it's gross and it's nasty and it offends us morally and we don't want to see it. So put them in jail. One of the sex trafficking gangs critiques of sex workers rights activists is that you guys won't acknowledge that some people are doing it under duress and are doing it against their will. And when I talk to sex workers rights activists, that's not true. Those are the people that you don't want doing sex work. Right. Because they're then used to attack all sex workers. Yeah, no, th- I've never known any sex work activist who did not acknowledge that trafficking sometimes happens. Now, it's not the 100,000 to 300,000 figure they like to throw around. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem, it's actually really hard to get uh, a number on a really fluid and underground population. But we have a lot of reasons to believe that it's l- less than that. And there are studies that show that two-thirds of people who have been trafficked, who are being exploited, 
forced to do a job against their will are actually working as domestics and in restaurants. Yes. And we never talk about those trafficking victims because no one's touching them with a penis. There's no, it's not pictures of little girls in cages, so it's not sexy. You know, no one wants to do it. And mm. uh, so, yeah, I think it says a lot about what our you know focus is on, that it's all about the sex trafficking and the language they use. is so fetishistic. It's so sensationalizing. Uh, and yeah, they kind of refuse to admit that we exist at all. Our own city attorney, Pete Holmes, a couple of weeks here ago. In Seattle. Here in Seattle. Progressive Seattle, gay marriage and pot and – yeah, pretty much stood up in front of a bunch of people and said that we don't exist. He'd never met a prostitute who was not trafficked, even though they were women sitting in that room talking to him who said, hey, we're sex workers and we're not trafficked. No, that's like they erase us. We don't exist. Let's now shift awkwardly to this caller's <laughs> question, which we invited you because we had some BDSM questions. But while I had you here, I wanted to have a talk about Thank sex you, work. Thank you for It's so important. It was just Sex Workers' Rights Day, International Sex Workers' Rights Day, a couple of weeks ago, March Third. Third. And is well, that a new thing? How long has International Sex Workers' Rights Day been going on? Um, I want to say about a decade. I mean, it's sort of one of those holidays that obviously you don't see on the Hallmark calendar. <laughs> <Happy> <laughs> Although I Arbor think you're happy. Right. Uh, again, gaining steam. This was uh, – we had a great year in Seattle for uh, Sex Workers' Rights Day. We went down to Olympia. A whole bunch of us, like 15, 20 of us, went to Olympia and stormed the state capitol and roamed up and down the halls and pounced on senators and representatives and talked to them. And uh, it was great. You introduced yourselves to we them. We did. We said, look – here we are. And we, we exist and we just, aren't trafficked. Right. Stop uh, trying to throw us in fucking jail and ruin our lives. Yeah, because the in-demand programs, the bills that are currently being considered, are not going to help anyone who's being trafficked. Uh, they, it's just driving up policing. They want to arrest more people. That's not the way to go with this. It's, it's sort of uh, the opposite of how I think the whole nation should be going in terms of uh, social problems, arrest more people. It's like, no, these people need solutions, not jail time. And you know, there's a solution that we need for people who are trying to buy sex. The letter I constantly get from t- people who are interested in buying sex is how do I do this without getting arrested myself, but also without hiring someone who doesn't want to be doing sex work, somebody who's doing it under duress, somebody who has been trafficked. All the Johns who write me at Savage Love are wringing their hands in terror of, of the prospect of, of hiring someone and having this interaction with them that is abusive and exploitative. They want to find the sex workers who are doing it of their own free will, who are consenting adults, who are you and yeah. the other uh, wonderful women in SWAP. Wop. Yes. And there's no path to them. And these end-demand bills are actually making it harder for people to find people who haven't been trafficked. Yeah. We, what we want is nonviolent adults engaging in consensual behavior. We, we want to make that as easy as possible. And we want to stop – because there are bad people who want to do bad things. We want to stop bad people. But you don't – the further you push um, uh, even like trafficked or youth or – the more – if you think they're going to get arrested if they come forward, they're not going to come forward. They're going to hide more and more from police. They're going to try to evade people who want to help them with services because uh, we have – there are people in this town uh, like Eileen Corcoran who will help you if you're on the street and you need services. But if she can't find you because because you're so afraid of being arrested, then, then the help can't get to you. So these, these more arrest bills, uh, they just make the problem worse. All right. Let's talk about BDSM. All right. Let's I really, I'm glad we talked about that. Uh, you're doing so much uh, work now and tweeting so much about sex workers' rights that I felt like we should talk about that first. Because that's you. more important than this idiot's problem, right? Who's <laughs> not an idiot. He sounds like a wonderful, thoughtful guy and considerate. And he's back, got back together with an ex who in the time that they were apart, and they're still in love, but the time that they were apart, she began to explore BDSM. And now she needs that as a part of her sexual expression and sex play. And he does not give it to her. 
Hilariously, he says, I don't know how to say to her, I'm going to tie you up. I'm going to blindfold you. You said it to us just fine. <laughs> I don't know why you can't say that exact same thing to her. But your advice is a professional dominant for someone who is with somebody who's a sub, uh-huh. who is asking them to dom up for them. How do you grow into that role? Do not read Fifty Shades of Grey, whatever <laughs> you do. Please promise me that you will not read that in this terrible, stupid book. Um, First make billions in the tech industry. <laughs> Buy a penthouse. Oh, no. Paint a room red. No. Oh, my God. Uh, do some crunches. There's, <laughs> well, you know, that part's thousands all Thousands right. and thousands of crunches. <laughs> uh, fortunately, there's a fairly kind of well-trod path for, like, how to be a BDSM top. There have been innumerable books written on this topic. And I, one of my favorites that came out a long time ago is called Sensuous Magic by Patrick Califia. And it's got, like, kind of little lessons, like, here's a little vignette, and here's what to do, and here's how to get ready for it. And uh, the thing about BDSM is that it's not supposed to be, well, in my opinion, perfectly spontaneous. It's okay to like prep for it, to like plan out a scene and kind of warm your girlfriend up, maybe and yourself too, by sending her an email saying, tomorrow night I'm going to come home and I'm going to tie you up. And, you know, you may start- this and this and this is going to happen. And it's a form of negotiation that's disguised as flirting. Yes. Because you're saying, I'm going to do this and this and this. How do you feel about that? And right. you, and then if she's like, yes, oh my God. Ugh. But if she says, oh, that sounds good. But that I'm not so sure. Like you have yeah. to listen to how yeah. they're reacting to what you're proposing. Yeah. But to say it in advance, I mean, that's dirty talk. Like I'm always telling people, yeah. dirty talk yeah. is say what you're going to do. Tell them what you're doing. Tell them what you just did. Right. I'm going to fuck the shit out of you. I am fucking the shit out of you. I just <laughs> fucked the shit out of you. Dirty talk. Done. Easy. And it applies to BDSM too. Yes. I think BDSM is particularly well suited to it. Totally well suited to it. Uh, you know, if he really has no imagination, then yeah, you can you can pull things out of books as long as it's not Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> you may not. I strictly forbid it. Any other books you could recommend off the top of your head for him? Oh, um, well, if you want to go retro old school fiction, you could go back from to the eighties and read Anne Rice's uh, beauty trilogy books, which I'm told are now going to make into a TV series. What? Yes, yes, that is a true fact. They have been. It's been. Uh, because they saw Fifty Shades of Grey and they're like, hey, we have these books uh, that were total fantasy, one-handed reading uh, that were hugely popular in the 80s and 90s. So Anne Rice uh, uh, wrote something called The Beauty Trilogy. Go and find them and they're completely ridiculous fiction. But if you need a little inspiration, um, those are good. And you could watch Cruising with Al Pacino. Oh. <laughs> or not. Or not, really. People keep talking about Fifty Shades of Grey like it's the first bad movie, mainstream Hollywood film about BDSM. And there was Cruising. There was Exit to Eden. Oh, which which I kind of liked Exit to Eden. Well, it had Paul Mercutio in it. What's not to like about <laughs> seeing Paul Mercutio's butt? But it also had Rosie O'Donnell and Dan Aykroyd in it. I know, which I thought was just kind of awesome in a really, really <laughs> terrible way. I sort of loved it. It was completely an abortion of the book. But, uh, uh, you know, what thing about Fifty Shades of Grey is that it made me love Secretary. Did you read uh, Erica Moen at Ojoy oh Sex Toy? Yes. Compare and contrast Secretary with Fifty Shades of Grey and all the dings on Fifty Shades apply actually perhaps more strongly to the sex in, in Secretary, that consent is very blurry, that there's, not, there's no aftercare, that 
Yeah. There are total violations of sort of best BDSM practices all over Secretary, yes. but nobody cares because it's a good movie. Well, I cared at the time. I railed against Secretary because of all these things. Ah, uh-huh. uh, and I was, but I have to admit that I have kind of a, a, a thing for James Spader along with, you know, everyone else with two legs. Uh, I, I have no thing. For it's James not your Spader, thing. No. Oh, I, his, it's just his voice. It's very sexy. Doesn't do anything for me. Uh, so yeah, I railed about it at the time. Uh, in retrospect, like at least he wasn't like an eccentric billionaire. It was not so far removed from reality. And the fact is that I have known people who had relationships not unlike the one in that in that film, mm. and it was okay. I mean, it was a little weird and kind of gimpy. Is and, it okay and, for BDSM people interested in kink and BDSM to enjoy pornography and literature and erotica where consent is blurry? Yes, absolutely. So does that not exonerate Fifty Shades of Grey in the same way that Secretary isn't being torn apart? And Secretary, for those of you who don't know, a film starring uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader about a kinky BDSM relationship between an employer and an employee, Mm -hmm. an employee who is desperate for a job and economically dependent on him. And it becomes a BDSM relationship. But it's a good movie. It's good art. Mm Mm-hmm. Fifty Shades is a bad movie, I guess. Bad art, but is it okay? Is it okay for kinksters to sometimes read a story, or enjoy it, or jack off to it, or masturbate to it, or bust out the Hitachi magic wand to it, where consent is absent or blurry or gray? It's absolutely fine to get off to anything that you want to get off to. It's when you want to translate that into real life that it becomes a problem. Right. And I, Fifty Shades of Gray is being sold as a lifestyle way more than Secretary ever was. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's Fifty Shades of Gray stamped. Everything I can target stores. Bears, I mean, bears. right? Fifty Shades of Grey teddy yeah, bears for the kids. Fifty Shades of Grey like little baby clothes. Yeah, there's like oh little God, little onesies. Color just went out of my face. <laughs> onesies that say "I'm looking for Mr. Grey" or oh, "I'm you looking for." Be kidding I, me. I am not kidding you. Those totally exist, and they maybe we just want to throw things. So yeah. Did the, we run out of daddy drinks because I cry onesies and we had to like <laughs> get Fifty Shades of Grey onesies? So yeah, I don't I don't know what to think about why it's being sold so much as a lifestyle. Um, I guess just because the book was so popular, but uh, that that is what the problem to me with Fifty Shades is. Okay, caller, I hope you got your answer. It was wedged between a long conversation about <laughs> sex workers' rights and a long conversation about Fifty Shades of Grey. But we gave you a couple of book recommendations and some good advice. I hope we have a couple more questions for you, and actually, they're about sex work. Uh, not about BDSM. So we could have had a whole sex work conversation uh, wrapped around the questions coming, but I'm an idiot and I jumped the gun because I was really interested in what was going on right now with sex workers' rights. But here we go. A couple more questions. You happy to hang yeah, around? Yeah, I'm great. Hey, Dan. A quick question for you. I'm not sure if you can find the facts to answer this question or not. But it's Valentine's Day. My sister proposed a question to me wondering if this was the most popular night for sex workers. And if it wasn't, what the most popular night for sex workers during the year may be. I told her that I thought it was probably a more popular night for porn downloads than it was possibly for sex workers, in which case she did agree with me with that theory, but we can't really necessarily come up with a better alternative for if there is a most popular day of the year for sex workers, and what would it be? The most popular day of the year for hiring sex workers. It should be Arbor Day with the got wood. Being the slogan. Uh-huh. Oh, geez, Good one, please. right? Yes. Oh, Nobody gives yeah. a shit about Arbor Day. The sex workers should steal it, appropriate it. Uh, okay, well. Like I'll... gays took rainbows and the word gay. You guys should take Arbor Day. Uh, all right, I will speak to my sex workers about that. And we, will, <laughs> we will get right on that. Uh, <laughs> we'll have a conclave at Sex Worker Vatican City and you'll make a decision. We'll watch for the sex worker smoke out the chimney, which is pink. 
Um, I'm kind of like, so these are like four people who want to know what the most popular day to hire a sex worker is. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I've ever considered that before, and I think it's going to vary according to what kind of sex worker you are. Uh, you spank more people around Valentine's Day than you do normally? Uh, no. Like, around Thanksgiving, I, I, I get oddly busy. They can account for missing time, and they can also account for missing money. Uh, so, they, and that's... <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of stress, so people kind of need to to decompress. Uh, so I actually am often uh, quite busy around that time of year. I think strippers uh, will probably have a whole different answer for you. Mm-hmm. There's a whole paycheck cycle there, and I'm told that... Uh, I never saw this in strip clubs around tax refund time. There will often be a spike ah. uh, in business. And, and maybe around Halloween. I actually do get, like, curious people around Halloween. I don't know. I'm like, I'm not a goth. This is not like a Satan thing. But for some reason, people think of Halloween. They think of dominatrixes. So It's a costume. Where uh, people it, can regard it as one or view it as one. It's weird to see my – yeah, it's weird to see a dominatrix costume in, in Halloween stores. I'm like, that's my job. Hi, Dan. I am a sex worker in my late 20s, and I am calling because I have a common problem. One of my clients has fallen in love with me. I know that sex workers deal with this quite often, but I'm not really sure what to do. I don't want to end the interaction because this person is my best client. I don't feel like I'm harming him in any way. And in fact, I've actually used my position as a sex worker to do things like force him to go see a kink-friendly therapist so he can work on his emotional problems. However, at some point when I retire, um, I'm not sure how to end the relationship in a way that is safe to me. And I also am not sure if I can continue it um, in good conscience when this person reiterates again and again how I'm the only woman for them. I feel a little less guilty about that because I've seen this person write letters to other sex workers with the exact same fantasy about them being like the only one. But I'm just really not sure what to do, and I'm afraid this isn't going to end well. So is this a red flag, or is this just part of his fantasy that he's in love with her? How concerned should she be? I don't think he should be concerned by what she said. Uh, She does not seem to feel that she's in any danger from him. I did not hear her say that he's demanding that she make changes in her behavior towards him or that she – she charging him. Right. Or, you know, kind of yeah, in any way cross her own boundaries or, or change the nature of their relationship. Uh, she's correct in saying this does happen a lot. Um, the thing you have to think of is that some people work with, shall we say, a limited emotional vocabulary – and there are people who say, I love you. And what they mean is, I feel happy in your presence. Uh, you know, I like you and think highly of you. And that's... I appreciate what you do for me. Right. I enjoy the time we spend together. Yeah. And those things are all... Per- and, and that's what they, you know, they don't have perhaps the sophistication to say those things in the way that you and I just said them. So they, what they say is, I love you. I w- had a conversation once with a sex worker who said, there are two clients you have to worry about. The one who says, I hate you. Oh. And the one who says, I love you. Yeah, I've never actually had a client say I hate you in person. Or and act like they hate you. Yes. Like the hate is palpable, that yes. they're own disgust with themselves yes. and having to see a sex worker. The shame that you can really sense them externalizing their own like conflict about having to resort to sex workers to get sex. Yes, I have been in that room and that's scary. And But also she said that the, the flip side is that she's afraid of clients who say I love you because of the attitude that can come with that around – being possessive and controlling the things that you cited as potential problems right. that she doesn't mention as being a factor. 
Right. She doesn't mention these things. She doesn't sound afraid. Uh, he doesn't seem to, you know, by what she said, be demanding that she make changes. Um, there's kind of a, because of the things that you mentioned, I think sex workers sort of instinctively want to maintain this weird kind of emotional middle ground where they don't hate you, but they don't love you either. And I think that the idea that uh, keeping yourself distant from a client in some emotional way makes you safe, that's a myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important to hear what he's saying and watch what he's doing and make a judgment about your own safety uh, based on his behavior. So it's okay to stop seeing a client because it makes you uncomfortable that he says, I love you. That's an okay choice to make. I don't see that this caller needs to make that choice if she doesn't want to. She says that he's she's aware that he said it to other sex workers, so this seems to be a thing where he's kind of romanticizing this and that's fine and he may totally well, maybe and, part of his turn on yeah part of what he's paying for and but can he articulate that no and he doesn't have to all he has to do is uh, keep his behavior within her boundaries uh and yeah as i said if she wants to not see him anymore she could but i don't think that she should uh she mentions that she's not sure how this is going to end well i'm not quite sure what that means uh one of the ways if you're one of the classic ways to uh, retire and to, to pass your good clients on to another person is to, in fact, start doing duos with that other person. I want you to meet my friend. There's hardly anyone in the world who will say, oh, no, I don't want another sexy person to join us. <laughs> um, and so you introduce them that way and you kind of – and then you ease yourself out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And I've been the third person a number of times and had people pass me on uh, their good clients that way and it's awesome. Uh, There's something I wanted to draw attention to for listeners in case it flew by in the call – that she, it sounds like, made a, a condition to continue seeing her that he went and spoke to a counselor, that he got mental help. And, and I'm not like bringing that up because that's a problem. I'm bringing that up because that is awesome. Yeah. And when we talk about sex workers, when we talk about their relationships with their clients, it's always about exploitation, whether the, when we're talking about the sex worker being exploited, whether we're talking about the sex worker exploiting the client for money. And there can actually be real human affection and interactions and embetterment that people can, through interacting with a sex worker, get some, not just the sex that they want, but some of the emotional support that they need, some guidance, some advice. I've seen this with my own, some people I know personally, I wouldn't, you know, not friends, but people I know personally who went to a sex worker and, and this is a cliche, you hear this a lot, I don't know if it's a cliche, you hear this a lot, that often people go to sex workers and they wind up talking the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. That they're at a set, there might be yeah. sex, but there's also a lot of conversation, and sex workers find themselves doing yeah. good. Yeah. I'm kind of like the naked therapist. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no credit in the culture. There's no acknowledgement of that role. There's no celebration of that. Not enough, in my opinion, because, yeah, I think it happens a lot. I've done it a lot. I know a lot of people who have done it. And it complicates the whole picture of sex workers as exploited victims or hard-hearted manipulators. Yeah, there's not a lot of nuance, unfortunately, in the public perception. I, I will say that, yeah, I mean, in fact, the, him going to see a therapist may be one of the reasons he's told her that he loves her because a the therapist is probably telling him to express his feelings, mm-hmm. which is great. Uh, and he may be grateful for the progress that he's made that he wouldn't have made if she hadn't right. encouraged him to see a therapist in the first place. Right. Uh, she said kink-friendly, which leads me to believe that he's kind of got some BDSM going on in there somewhere that he's trying to work through. She's doing it with him. Uh, no, I think as long as she doesn't feel like she is in some danger, he's That's not. That's the red flag that she needs to watch for. Trust your gut. If you feel like you're right. in danger, if you get a creepy, violent, controlling sense from him, end it. Right. No, but if he's continuing to be a good client and abiding by your, your boundaries and you feel okay about it, I don't think you're doing anything ethically wrong by continuing to see this guy and 
accepting, compassionately accepting his love, which is an art in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, to love someone is one thing, and to accept love is another. And not everyone has the ability to gracefully and compassionately accept the love of another person in a way that validates that person. Now, somebody on the outside looking at that might say, yes, but isn't she leveraging his feelings of affection for her for financial gain? Isn't that exploitative? Do we? So does, he, does he not have any agency in this? Do mm-hmm. we? Are we kind of removing his choices in this I matter? I love this person, but the only way I can see this person is to pay this person to see me. If he's in love with her, and so taking his money and allowing him to see her on, you know, with mm-hmm. that condition, mm-hmm. is she exploiting his affections for her for financial gain? I don't know if she. I would say that she's exploiting him. I would say that she's accepting what he has to offer and. Some people see sex workers because what they have to offer us is money. Mm -hmm. They know that they are not emotionally available or emotionally capable of being in a relationship with someone where they meet that other person's needs. They are there as a partner to them in a a real way. All they have to offer is money. Uh, And so we negotiate that and and accept it. Uh, Does that make any sense? But it's still a provider-client relationship. And it's crazy the way we say that only in the case of sex workers is that provider-client relationship illegitimate in, mm. every, in every way, that right. it can't ever be a legitimate provider-client. My mother loved her hairdresser for 30 years yeah. and was kind of emotionally dependent on her hairdresser. Yeah. And they had a wonderful relationship that was built around my mother paying her to touch her head, to do her hair. <laughs> well, I mean, people, there were arranged marriages, and marriages have traditionally been a system based on money and economic uh, exchange. Uh, and it's only in the last 50 years that that's been different. So in a way, this is like a little tiny arranged marriage uh, where they partake of the, you know, the rituals and the pleasures, and he provides economic support. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It is always a pleasure to be here. It is always a pleasure. You should be following Mistress Matisse on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. Right. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I have a quick question for you that I'd like to hear you weigh in on. I've read a little bit about a sort of a mild controversy, and I was wondering what you think. Is poly an orientation? Uh, I've been reading some people are suggesting that it is. Other people are suggesting, well, duh, all men are poly. All men would fuck everybody if they were allowed to. So I was just wondering what your opinion was on that. Thanks. There are a lot of poly people out there who argue that poly is an orientation, and it is how they are romantically oriented. And I don't see poly as an orientation in the same way that lesbian, gay, bi are orientations. Um, I see lesbian, gay, bi as who you want to do and poly and other things as what you want to do with them, right? I get in trouble for holding this position. It's pissed off some people in polyland, which is kind of hysterically ridiculous because there is no more pro-poly, pro-non-monogamous, pro-monogamish writer, talker, advisor than I am. And I really think that this argument is about a a distinction without a difference. I think people are capable of loving more than one person at one time. I think people are certainly attracted to more than one person at one time. I think we are all naturally sort of fundamentally, essentially non-monogamous. That is our baseline wiring, all of us. And then what do you choose to do with that? How do you choose – how do you want to move through the world? Some people want a monogamous commitment even though they know that they're attracted to more than one person at one time. Some people believe erroneously that if you're in love with one person, you can't also concurrently be in love, romantic love with another person, which is not a love standard we apply to any other kind of relationship. You can love more than one child. You can love more than one parent. You can love more than one friend, but you can't love more than one romantic partner at a time. Not true. 
So I, I say all this to, you know, to say that I think people are probably more poly than not. And poly may be our emotional romantic default setting. It's, I think it's in our wiring. But I think poly, you know, I guess I just, I'm a sexual orientation absolutist. I think lesbian, gay, bi is an orientation. Everything else, monogamous, polyamorous, kink, BDSM, all of that is not who you are, but what you're doing. A lot of people disagree. Jillian Keenan, she's been on the show. I mentioned her a couple of times recently. She's been on the show. She's a kinky uh, writer. She writes about all sorts of interesting, complicated things, climate change and worldwide conflicts and uh, the environment. Uh, she also writes about the fact that she is kinky and she experiences her kink as her orientation, not as some thing that she just kind of enjoys doing with the men that she's oriented toward wanting to have sex with. And I think she experiences that as an orientation and she's allowed to make that argument, right? There are also people who argue uh, and there is evidence to support that pedophilia is a sexual orientation, that zoophilia, being attracted to animals, is a sexual orientation. It seems to me that if we're going to define everything as a sexual orientation, relationship models, kinks, attractions to animals and children, that sexual orientation as a concept has become so broad as to be meaningless. And then maybe the conversation we need to be having is not about what is or isn't an orientation as if that gives its legitimacy. You know, people want to argue that polyamory is an orientation to legitimize polyamory somehow. Also because that's how they experience it. That's how they feel. But I think part of the argument is about legitimizing polyamory. It is an orientation. It's not something I can help. It's not a choice I've made. That's the argument when it comes to orientation around lesbian, gay, bi, and straight, right? It's not something you chose. It's who you are. I think maybe we need to move away from that whole orientation model of justifying who you are and what you want to do and how you want to live and just get to the model of consenting adults. If consenting adults are doing it, it's fine, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be an orientation, right? If two consenting adults or three or four want to be in a relationship, awesome, great, and then we can have an argument about whether it's an orientation or not. But it's really meaningless, the arguments about what is or isn't an orientation. Because the only thing that matters at the end of the day is are the people doing whatever's being done consenting adults who want to be there, who are not being used, abused, or exploited, and who are the better for this, whatever it is that they're doing. And if the answer to those questions are yes, 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 and yes – then whether it is or isn't an orientation is a nice sideline conversation, but it's ultimately irrelevant. Hi, Dan. Um, I need some advice about being, quote, undateable. I've, I've heard you talk about this before, um, and following your advice, I've, I've really come to terms with it. I feel like I've made my life really full with friends and hobbies, and I've got a job that I like. I have a long-term trusting and fun sexual relationship with this guy that I'm otherwise completely not compatible with. So we've been doing this for like 10 years off and on. Um, I've got my best friend that I have really strong emotional intimacy with. We travel, we go on dates. He's totally gay. And that's, you know, again, not a compatible um, romantic relationship. But between the two of them, I just feel like I'm covered. Um, I'm not lacking in anything in my life. Uh, the problem is that I guess on paper, at least, I'm sort of a catch. Um, I'm fun. I'm fairly attractive. Boys like me. Um, and then I start to like them back. And then I start to think, hey, maybe there is this possibility for a relationship out there. But, you know, for a number of reasons, I'm not even really sure of what exactly they all are. 
I'm really undateable and um, they always end up bailing and I end up hurt and things never really get past that initial phase. You know, we might start to spend the night and then it just kind of fizzles out and it's always them. Um, They just sort of like stop calling or stop whatever. And I guess my question is, should I keep trying? I mean, no matter how happy and confident and no matter how comfortable I am with my life and myself, rejection always hurts and it stings. And I just don't really, I'm not really putting myself out there and seeking these dates, but you know, they come to me and I just, I feel like at some point I've got to just stop, stop trying and say no. But then there's also this part of me that is like, I don't know, accidentally I watch a rom-com and then I think like, Oh, maybe, you know, maybe it's out there. So yeah, I need your help. Like, um, at what point should I be done? Before I can tell you whether you should or should not stop trying, we should think for a second about what it is you are trying to find. It seems to me that you have found in two people, your regular fuck buddy with whom you've had a 10-year successful relationship, a fuck buddy relationship, friends with benefits. You've had a successful 10-year connection with this guy. And then there's your gay best friend that you really do have kind of a romantic connection with, just not a sexually romantic connection. You go on dates, you travel together. It sounds like you have real emotional intimacy with this gay best friend. So you have found in two men what the culture tells you and the rom-coms tell you and perhaps your parents and friends tell you, you have to try to find in one guy that you're doing sex and romance wrong because you're finding these things in two guys. When you talk about these guys, you sound really happy and you sound really satisfied. And, you know, I don't want to tell you to give up if what you want, you yourself, what you really want is everything that these two guys bring to the table in one guy. And maybe it would be great and better if you could find it in one guy. Maybe you'd feel like more of a sexual romance success if you found it in one guy. But there are people out there who are unhappily single who haven't found what you found in any guy who aren't getting their sexual needs met, who don't have a strong sexual connection with anyone and never have had one and who don't get their emotional needs met. their sort of romantic emotional needs met. They don't have the kind of intense romantic friendship that you have with your gay best friend. It seems to me that you're winning and maybe you should have a little reset and try to think of it that way. Be open to possibility because maybe what you ultimately would like is a big wedding and one guy who brings everything to the table and ends the friends with benefits, fuck buddy relationship with Mr. 10 years and crowds out and will crowd out to some extent your gay best friend. Yeah, all with one guy and maybe that'll happen for you and you have to be open to that possibility. That means enduring the rejections that will come. Every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to end until one doesn't. You don't know which one that is until you die, right? You have to be open to that kind of rejection. If you can't handle that kind of rejection, if you find that shredding, you could settle for what you've got, which is a beautiful relationship with two men, one of whom meets your sexual needs, one of whom meets your emotional and romantic needs. I'm not telling you what you should want. I'm just encouraging you to think about whether what you've got might be what you want, right? And Perhaps you're capable of recognizing that because the culture and the rom-coms have told you again that you're not allowed to have this in two people, that you have to have it in one person or you failed at the sex and romance game. 
That's not necessarily so. That's not necessarily the case. And it may not be the case in your instance. Hi, Dan. This is a 21-year-old student in the Midwest. Currently, I'm in a long-distance monogamous relationship. And um, so um, when my boyfriend moved away, obviously that was an issue. I like the lack of sex was an issue. Um, and I realized kind of early on that he wasn't really into sexting and any sexting that did happen was largely initiated by me. And uh, anytime we like jerked off on FaceTime, it was something I kind of had to beg for. So I brought it up today. And I mean, we see each other enough. Obviously, I'd like to see him more. But I brought it up today with him. And I was just asking, you know, you know, this is something that would make me happy if we jerked off more. I'm not asking for a once a week thing maybe just like once every two week thing for a half hour, you know, and all he could say was that he would do it when he wants to do it. And it's not something that he really likes to do very often at all. And I asked him why, and because I think having an open conversation about our sex life is important. And um, we've been dating over a year now. So I asked him why, and he just shuts down and doesn't want to tell me why and doesn't think it's relevant. And I do think it's relevant. So I guess my question for you is that I kind of think it's a red flag that he won't tell me why he feels this way about it. Not so much that he isn't into it. So should I drop it and just let that go? Or do I press the issue? Full disclosure right here at the top. Jerking off on FaceTime, jerking off online, uh, that kind of sexting. I don't think I could do that. I, I've never done that. Um, I don't think I could sit in front of the computer uh, with my husband. And sometimes we're apart for, for weeks because we travel. And despite the fact that we're monogamous, when we're apart, we're not really banging tons of other guys. It's not how our non-monogamy thing works, right? So there are sometimes weeks of deprivation and going without as we're apart. And I couldn't, you know, maybe every once in a while we'll get on the phone and say a dirty thing or two to each other, but we're not uh, jacking off on the computer. And I don't think I could do that. And I'm just uncomfortable performing in front of the camera. I don't think, you know, I, I trust that Terry isn't going to take screen grabs or make a recording and give it to Gawker. You know, I don't, I'm not worried about my privacy being violated. I would just be self-conscious and I wouldn't find it arousing. It wouldn't work for my erotic imagination. You know, if I'm going to jack off and I might jack off about him, I'm just going to close my eyes and think of him. There's something's unsexy to me about sitting in front of the computer with my dick in my hands. I guess is what I mean to say. I think it's a bad sign that your boyfriend can't unpack for you the same way I just unpacked for all of you, whether you liked it or not, why I can't jack off in front of my laptop, in front of my computer, right? Um, I think that... There's a problem here. And the problem isn't that your boyfriend doesn't want to do it and doesn't like doing it. I wouldn't want to do it. I wouldn't like doing it. I don't do it. And I wouldn't if Terry asked, but he's never asked. So obviously he doesn't give a shit and doesn't want to see that. But the fact that you, this would be good for you and you would enjoy it and it would, you know, during this long distance stage of your relationship, it would make you feel close. It's a nice substitute for the time you're not actually spending together on top of each other. The fact that you asked in this way and he couldn't even talk about it. He couldn't tell you, he couldn't explain, he couldn't share with you, couldn't open up with you about why this doesn't work for him. Instead, he just sort of shut you down and 
refuse to discuss it and refuse to be open with you about sex and intimacy. That is a bad sign. The bad sign isn't that he doesn't want to do it. If he doesn't want to do it, it doesn't work for him. If he finds it off-putting or dehumanizing or unsexy, he doesn't have to do it. But the fact that he can't tell you that, that he doesn't feel safe or he doesn't trust you enough or he doesn't care for you enough to explain why this thing that would be important to you is not a thing that he could see himself doing, that doesn't bode well for the future of your relationship. And that's the conversation maybe that you now need to have with him. Setting aside, just set it aside. I'm not asking you to jack off with me online anymore on FaceTime or whatever we're using. I'm not asking for that. What I'm asking is going forward, if we go forward, it's only been a year and we're in our very early 20s and odds being what they are. But you know, if we go forward, I want to be in a relationship with somebody where we can be completely open and honest with each other about sex and really communicate about our needs, about our wants, our desires, also about our dislikes. And when there's discord or a disconnect, that we can talk that out so that we're both comfortable with why whatever the one or the other of us wishes was happening isn't happening. So we can be content even if we're going without because we understand. And right now I'm not content because I'm going without this thing that I would like and I don't understand why. Not, not reopening the conversation about sexting and jacking off online. Just as a precedent, it concerns me because there will be other issues if we stay together for many, many years that we will need to discuss and we need to be open with each other. And if we can't talk about those things, then our relationship is doomed because in a long-term relationship that's sexually exclusive or even one that isn't sexually exclusive, we have to be able to talk to each other and be open and honest with each other about sex, about desire, about interests, about disinterests, and really communicate. And right now we're not communicating, and that concerns me. And that's what you need to say to him. Hi, Dan Savage and the Tech Savvy at-risk youth. I am a 28-year-old female, and I've been with my boyfriend for about two years. He's great. Everything with him is great. But I have a question regarding his, a situation with his parents. We spend time with him about once a week, and it's normally very comfortable a few weeks ago, however, we were over at their home and we'd been there a couple of hours and he and I were sitting on the couch and I must have um, adjusted my position in some way because the couch started vibrating unexpectedly and I kind of shot up and was asking, what is this? Did you have a massage thing in your couch? Is there a problem and no one in the room would look at me. And finally, my boyfriend's father said, it's an alarm, which he was trying to cover, but it finally dawned on me that I had accidentally turned on his mother's vibrator, which was buried somewhere in the couch. Well, my boyfriend was mortified. We left about 30 minutes later and kind of chalked it up to... Well, that was a funny story. Maybe we can laugh about it in six months when he's not been mortified. And, you know, after this, she should move the vibrator. Well, this past week, we were over there again, and the couch began vibrating in the middle of our visit again. My boyfriend and I very quickly said, you know, well, we have to go. We have some things we need to do and um, left. 
However, my question is, how do we handle this? Should we ask her to move it for the sake of company who may come over? My boyfriend is completely mortified and would never want to bring this up. So I'm wondering if I should or should he say something to his dad? It's such a bizarre situation. We're just not sure what to do or if we should do anything and just hope that she's moved it since the second time. Thank you very much. I'm tempted to put the tech savvy at risk youth on this because I'm not sure I believe this one. You, you, you sound like you're not making it up. You sound genuinely and honestly distressed. But I'm trying to picture a vibrator that if you put it under the couch cushion and somebody plopped down on top of it, it would just turn on. And I'm having a hard time picturing that kind of vibrator. I've used vibrators. I own a few vibrators. And I'm picturing them under a couch cushion and somebody just plopping down on top of it. And that's somehow triggering them and then triggering them because you find this all very traumatic. And I don't see it, but I think I'd get sued if I made the tech savvy at risk youth put a variety of different vibrators in a couch and jump up and down on top of it with their asses. I'd probably get in trouble for that, so we're not going to do it. My advice for you is to sit on the floor. My advice for you is to pull up a chair. My advice for you is to sit on the arm of the couch. My advice for you is not to treat this as if your mother-in-law is somehow hurting you because she has a sex toy and she stores it in a novel place and in a novel way. Don't go ratter out to dad. You know what you know. Don't sit on the fucking couch. They can't be the only place to sit at mom's house. The vibrating couch. Sit elsewhere or perch daintily at the edge of the sofa. Hey, Dan. I'm calling about the recent episodes where you've talked about women not being able to have an orgasm and... You're kind of riding the men a little tough with the whole asshole here, asshole there thing. Let's be honest. I, when somebody doesn't have an orgasm when you're with them, it kind of sucks. So you got to bear in mind that a lot of these guys who are calling are probably pretty decent guys. They're trying to figure out that gray line, and you're just adding to the width of it. When you say, well, thanks for trying and keep trying and be understanding and they're being understanding and they're being, they're doing all these things, but you're not addressing the reality that sometimes people do want to feel wanted. So you're also working under the assumption that the women who don't have orgasms are completely doing everything they should be doing. They've read the books. They've tried communicating more openly with their partner and maybe they haven't. So maybe they need some strategies about what they can do beyond just throwing out the word weed, which I agree with, and throwing out the name of a book. Try to relate a little bit to these men who are trying very hard to feel wanted and are trying very hard to be understanding and kind and generous and putting in the hours. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the agnostic man who uh, wants to marry his semi-Catholic girlfriend. Dude, just get married in the church. But uh, as you said, it won't be a Catholic church. But you can negotiate on exactly what happens in that ceremony. My wife is Christian. She's Episcopalian. I am uh, not Christian anyhow. And we had a ceremony in the church in which the priest performed the religious portion. We had a friend perform the civil portion because those are two separate things. Uh, God was mentioned. Jesus was not. We didn't do communion, and everyone felt like 
it was a proper ceremony for the two of us. Hi, Dan. I know you were mentioning wanting to see the Fifty Shades movie because you wanted to know the nature of the beast or something like that. Well, I wanted to record this message to tell you that while this is an admirable sentiment, you should, one, not put yourself through this horrible misery, and two, not give this garbage franchise your money. My husband and a friend and I decided to go see another movie. We were about 30 minutes too early for it and ended up sneaking into a Fifty Shades screening as a whim decision because it honestly felt like that was the only way we would sit through it. Do that. In fact, I say to all your listeners who want to see this movie for whatever reasons you may have, mine was morbid curiosity, get the ticket for another movie that you really want to support and sneak into a Fifty Shades screening. Also, don't forget your flash. We wouldn't have made it through without ours. And we're going to leave it there. Quickly before we go, a listener tweet. Ellen Shapiro at Loud Guitars tweets, Love Savage Lovecast, but every time at Fake Dan Savage pronounces URL Earl, I want to go to Seattle and smack him upside the head. Hashtag spell it out. It seems to me that the world is full of acronyms and abbreviations that we sound out. We don't say G-L-A-A-D. We say GLAAD, right? The GLAAD Awards are coming up, not the G-L-A-A-D Awards. And I don't know, URL, Earl. Why wouldn't you pronounce that Earl? It's faster to say Earl than to say U-R-L, right? And we say .com, we don't say .com, does we? I guess, however, we do say www, not So maybe, you know, at either end of the address, there's you might have a point. But I'm going to keep saying Earl, and uh, that means you are invited to Seattle to drop by the Lovecast and smack me upside the head sometime. Thanks for tweeting. Be sure to hashtag Savage Lovecast for the about the show. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow this week's guest, Mistress Matisse, on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. <laughs>